Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 29th episode, I'll be talking to Matt D. Wilson, author of Copernicus Jones, A Robot Detective, the International Society of Supervillains series of books, as well as the co-host of War Rocket Ajax and Movie Fighters, about parody and satire. Along the way, we'll discuss the weirdness of the Tick animated series, a little-known Jim Henson Muppet property, and we do our very best to get a Spaceballs prequel comic series off the ground. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake. My name is Matt D. Wilson, and I'm not the colorist. Even though that is in my Twitter profile, people still mistake me for colorist Matt Wilson, who doesn't even have the same middle initial as me, (laughs) as far as I know. But we get mistaken for each other sometimes on Twitter and in emails. I get his emails sometimes. I am a writer and a podcaster. I've been podcasting since like 2010-ish with Chris Sims, who I met years before that writing comedy on the internet, which is what I've been doing probably longer than anything else. He and I both wrote for Cracked Magazine when it was a magazine for four issues, again (laughs) in around 2006, 2007. We both wrote for that. I wrote for like NationalLampoon.com. I wrote for Cracked.com after the magazine folded and did like a a lot of comedy writing stuff online for a long time. And throughout that, I've always wanted to be involved in and do comic book stuff. Like I had a column where I was doing reviews and writing some other stuff on like a now more or less defunct comic book review site when I was still in college. So I was kind of juggling this stuff with comic books and comedy all at the same time. And that sort of culminated around 2007 or 2008 when I kind of got fed up with writing for Cracked and they were changing their format from comedy to the lists that they do now. That's not my bag. I'm more into just like comedy. I started this website called the International Society of Supervillains to have those things intersect. And also because I worked at a newspaper and I didn't want my editors seeing the silly jokes I was writing online and be like, you got to take all this down or you're fired. (laughs) So I started writing under the pseudonym King Oblivion PhD and started developing a voice for that guy. And in the process... However many years later, almost a decade later, I've written three books as him. (laughs) One is coming out in June. And I've also written some comics. I've written a comic called Copernicus Jones Robot Detective, which is available on Comixology. And I did a Kickstarter for a trade paperback. And now I'm kickstarting for a comic called Everything Will Be Okay, which is a creator-owned limited series. Uh, That's about that. Oh, if you want to know the names of my podcasts, by the way. (laughs) I was going to say. 
One is War Rocket Ajax, which I co-host with Chris Sims, where we talk about comics and try to be funny. And then the other one is Movie Fighters, which has the very original concept of us watching a movie and making fun of it. That is a long-winded answer, but I think that encapsulates what I've been doing for much longer than I would have ever thought I would continue doing it. I'm still having fun doing it, but yeah, that makes me a special snowflake, I think. (laughs) That's great. And I'm lucky enough to be one of the few people here in Australia who got to get my hands on Copernicus Jones Robot Detective in trade form. My friend Alex Hardison, who is a frequent writer in on War Rocket Ajax, loaned me his copy, so I got to get my hands on that, and that was a lot of fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that you worked in newspapers. Yes, I did. This is something that I had someone else who worked in newspapers raise with me. Do you ever get mad about headlines being shown in TV shows, and you look at it and you go, there's no way that headline would run? Constantly. <laughs> Anytime any newspaper thing happens on TV, I have to lean over to whoever might be watching it with me or to no one if I'm watching it by myself and be like, they got it all wrong. Like, that's not how that works. Because either headlines are wrong or there's an egregious example in the Netflix Daredevil series. Okay. Where Karen Page writes an open verse poem as a newspaper article and they run it. (laughs) Where like any editor would come back and be and say we can't run this, <laughs> <laughs> even the lenient father figure editor that she has. Yeah, whatever that was, would run in no newspaper in any section. <laughs> News, opinion, letters to the editor, it wouldn't run. It is the worst example of news writing I've ever seen or heard anywhere in any medium. That stuff bugs me. And any depiction of a newsroom, like where people have offices, that bothers me. Sometimes things will get it right occasionally. And I'll say like, hey, they kind of got that. They Like that feels like a newsroom or that like that feels like a news article. But more than, more than not, uh, I am annoyed by whatever, <laughs> whatever I see. My favorite recent example is on Riverdale, where the front page says, Cheryl Blossom guilty as sin. And I'm like, they haven't even had the trial yet. It's like, she's just been arrested. How can you... Yeah. There's not even, like, quotes around guilty as sin like it was a direct quote from her, which it was. But it's like, you that is, fa- that is opinion in the headline. It's libel. <laughs> it's li- libelous. They will lose that lawsuit. <laughs> also, you never use anyone's full name in a headline. <laughs> so where did you grow up? I grew up in Shelby, North Carolina, which is a town that is about an hour west of Charlotte and an hour and 15 minutes or so east of Asheville, where I live now. It was a weird place to grow up. I felt kind of isolated. I grew up around in a neighborhood that didn't have a lot of other kids. So I immersed myself in culture and media, be it books or video games or TV shows. A lot of that immersion was in part thanks to my aunt, my Aunt Diane, who would tape things off of TV. Or sometimes she would do the old rent a movie and copy the movie mm-hmm. uh, in one of those double VCRs. And then she would, I would get those movies that she would record or, or like just different TV shows that she would make. And then she would put them in the videotape box and put stickers all over the box. <laughs> and that was like the stuff I watched a lot of the time. It would be kid shows. It would be like Muppet stuff because I love the Muppets. It would be stuff taped off PBS. It would be movies, like I said. A lot of my formative culture as a kid came from that. Like, episodes of the Bozo Show, I remember, were part of that. Wait, wait, like like the black and white clown show? It went through the 80s. Oh, okay. Maybe even through the 90s. Oh, Jesus, really? Yeah, I mean, it was a different Bozo. 
<laughs> yeah, I remember it being on TV, on WGN, which was broadcast nationally through cable. So yeah, she would tape like mid to late 80s episodes of The Bozo Show, and I would watch those. Yeah, it's important to have that person who is kind of your tap when it comes to pop culture, especially when you're a kid. Yeah, and, and like I didn't have like neighborhood friends that like would get me into like playing D&D or that I'd go ride bikes with. Like there were two kids next door. Their grandparents lived next door because that's the that was the deal with my neighborhood. Like my parents were there and they were the only people in that neighborhood who were kind of their age. Everybody else was either much younger or much older. The other kids in the neighborhood were much older than me or they were babies <laughs> by the time I was eight or nine. So aside from the kids whose grandparents lived next door, like I didn't have like neighborhood kids to hang out with. And that's not something endemic to Shelby. That was just endemic kind of part of the neighborhood where I grew up. Because mm -hmm. I lived in kind of a rural part of town, like out, really outside of town. But Shelby's like a weird place also, like, it's this weird mix of very rural and shockingly urban all in one and suburban at the same time. But if you go into Shelby proper, there's like at one time, Shelby had the highest violent crime rate in the state of North Carolina. Wow. I don't know if that's true anymore. That was like 10 years ago. That's what's going on in the city of Shelby. And then you go outside of the city of Shelby and there's just the kind of like big, wide open areas where there's not much. And I kind of grew up in the not much. <laughs> so... So I had to find things to occupy myself with. And so that's what I did. Okay. And you mentioned immersing yourself in sort of media and things like that. What were some things that really made an impact on you at an early age? I think about those tapes from my Aunt Diane. And when I've talked about Copernicus Jones' Robot Detective in like interviews and stuff before, one of the things that I point to as maybe the, the top inspiration for Copernicus Jones, there, I think there are two. One is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh. which I watched constantly. <laughs> That was, that was a movie that Aunt Diane did not tape for me. I insisted I insisted that my mom take me to the movie theater to see it. <laughs> and then I insisted on buying it on VHS when it was available. But that was one of them. And then another one was something that my Aunt Diane did tape for me off of TV from a short-lived Jim Henson TV series where each episode was just like something that, that Jim Henson had laying around and didn't have anywhere to broadcast, so he put it on TV. Like, there was one episode where it was just like, here's how TV works. Here's how things get matted into shots or whatever. And there was one that was like, here's behind the scenes of the Dark Crystal. But the one that really stuck with me was this 30-minute, I think it was a pilot for a TV series that didn't get picked up. So they showed it on this, I think it was called the Jim Henson Hour. It was called Dog City. What it was, was this show with puppets, and the only recognizable Muppet in it was Rolf from the Muppets. He was a piano player. Of course he was. As he was on The Muppets. But he was a piano player in this bar. And it was all about this dog named Ace U, Gazuntite, <laughs> who had come back to town after being gone. And there's, I think they talk about, there's talk, like he was an orphan. And he comes back to town after being gone for a while. And he's, he wants to be a private eye. But he also wants to open a halfway house. There's a bunch of jokes about it being a quarterway house instead of a halfway house. He gets embroiled in this noir story where he's the private detective. There are gangsters. There's a femme fatale. There are, like, Tommy gun fights in it. I remember a tail getting shot off at some point. <laughs> like, the like the crime boss's tail gets shot off. Brutal. It, it, it was, like, maybe just a little beyond what a six-year-old should be watching. And I was definitely six years old watching this. But it was so formative for me those two noir things noir parodies basically that take like cartoon animals 
or Muppets and put them in a noir setting made me fall in love with noir and are so much of the basis of what Copernicus Jones is. I've just looked up Dog City. For those of you thinking that it'll be like Rolf and the Muppets, you're not correct. Like These are some almost like realistic looking dogs as Muppets. Yeah. It's a little off-putting. But what I didn't realize until I got to the Muppet Wiki is that in the third season, they turned it into a cartoon, and I watched that show. There was a cartoon. Yeah. Yes. It, it was considered to be season three, and I saw the picture of Ace in his little Peter Falk trench coat, and yeah, I remember watching that on Saturday mornings. Uh, apparently, it was American-Canadian, so that's how maybe you saw it in, in Canada. That good Canadian content. There was the, the animated version, which I only have a passing familiarity with, to be honest. The TV movie, which, again, had to be some kind of failed pilot. That's the thing that has stuck with me. Oh, wow. That's the thing that has stuck with me forever. And even to the point where it's homaged in Copernicus Jones. His investigative software, when he uses it, mm-hmm. is called ACU, <laughs> named after that lead character. Cool. I don't mean to be the person who just reads the wiki, but I suddenly saw a link where it says, oh, that one episode of the animated series was called Who Watches the Watchdog? And it (laughs) it was literally a Watchmen spoof set in this dog city. Okay, I'm going to have to, I may have to go dig that up and watch it. It's amazing because there's the watchdog and he's got the five minutes to midnight clock on his chest. And he carries hourglasses, which act as gas canisters. I am the precious sands in the hourglass of society. I am the time that wounds all heals. I am the watchdog. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Ah, sorry, distracting. But <laughs> And just as you were talking about noir situations and funny animals, I have to ask, uh, have you read much of Black Sad? I haven't. It's been recommended to me. I was going to say, it sounds like it's directly up your alley from what you've just been saying. Yeah, I, I, that is also what I understand. I need to definitely go go grab it up and, and read it. It's one of those comic blind spots for me. But yeah, it's one of those, I definitely will get around to it <laughs> projects. I am sure that I would be into it if I really got, got going with it. A lot of the art style is almost Don Bluthian. But yeah, the, yeah. the concepts and the content are very, very adult. So it's a nice little juxtaposition. Now, you mentioned it a little bit, but when you came on the show, you wanted to specifically talk about parody and satire. So where did that start for you? Yeah, Dog City and Who Framed Roger Rabbit mm-hmm. are big ones. Beyond just noir, like so many of the genres that I know and, and I'm a fan of, I saw parodies of those things before I ever saw the original stuff. That makes sense. I mean, here it touted as the Simpsons effect now, but it's it's been going on for a long time. And that's actually part of the reason why when I was a kid watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I had no idea what I was supposed to be watching because it was shot, as, like, for example, at the beginning, it was shot like a Warner Brothers cartoon, which I was very familiar with. But I'm like, I don't know these characters. They're acting like I should know these characters. Am I missing something? And not realizing that I had just stepped into a noir situation. So the idea of seeing, okay, well, this is what, you know, a horror movie is like. This is what a noir detective story is like through parody. It makes a lot of sense. I think if you grew up in a certain time, the mid to late 80s, like parody of genres that were popular either just before then or 50 years before then, (laughs) (laughs) or or maybe, I guess, 40 years before then. That was, they were it was everywhere. It was so much of the culture of that time. Noir parody was was all over the place at that time. But even like superhero parody, I sort of concurrently became aware of superheroes through through actual superhero media and parrot and superhero parody like The Tick. I mean, The Tick was obviously quite a bit after I 
gained a familiarity with Batman and Spider-Man and, and all that stuff. But I was probably a bigger fan of The Tick than... I, I was as big a fan of The Tick as I was Batman the Animated Series, and I was watching them at the same time. Mm. You know, before that, I, I remember superhero parodies in, like, cartoons that I liked before I really was really into superheroes. I can't think of a great example right now, but, but you know, that, that was pretty common. Yeah, it's amazing that that Tick animated series made it onto TV because while I love that series, I can also admit it's really weird. It's so weird. It's very weird. But it's weird in a way that has informed my sense of humor ever since. The non sequitur, almost too clever for its own good stuff in that show ingrained ingrained in me forever yeah and also some incredibly deep references to superhero stuff stuff that i'm still just getting now anything from as common as oh yeah sewer urchin is basically aquaman on the super friends where he's completely useless until you get him in his element and then he's the best there is at what he does and incredibly deep cut references to just things in culture and history like the supervillain el seed (laughs) yes who is a gag on El Cid? E L S E E D and E L C I D. Which was both a Charlton Heston character and a real guy. <laughs> yeah. And like I can't remember I can't actually remember what this character was called, but he, he was he had all the violins and he had four arms and he, like it had something to do with Stradivarius. They kept talking about Stradivarius <laughs> in that episode. That was for children. <laughs> So those kind of like deep cut weird reference bits of humor and like weird stuff like Sarcastro, <laughs> who looks like Fidel Castro and is sarcastic. <laughs> or the human bulb who wants you to pay attention to his light bulb head, but also has a pig for a leg. <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so dumb, but like so beautifully dumb. Yeah. Or e- even just something like the man-eating cow, which is just a cow. <laughs> yes. Yes. Who worked for the terror. Yeah. Who, uh, the terror, who isn't really a parody of anything per se, he's just an old-fashioned supervillain. Once I determined that King Oblivion PhD is very old, that he's over 100 years old, the terror kind of worked his way into that voice for me a little bit. But I want to get back to the tick in a second, but, and how that has informed some of the stuff I do. But, like, in terms of, like, parody, seeing parodies before I saw the real stuff, like, okay, the comic that I'm kickstarting, everything will be okay. I've called it a satire of disaster stories because the pitch for it is what if every disaster happened at once? Seems legit. I'm sure I've seen that scenario in my SimCity simulations. It's when you hit all the buttons in that menu and you get the Godzilla and the tornado and the earthquake and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much that. I was aware of disaster parody before I was aware of disaster movies. Like, I knew about Airplane long before I knew about all those the plane's gonna crash movies that were like this weird trend in the 70s. Yeah. Like Airport 77 or whatever those movies were called. And, like, I've, I haven't even really seen those movies. Because those movies are so of their era. Like, nobody cares about, hey, the plane's going to crash movies of the 1970s. But people still watch Airplane. Like, the parody lives on in a way that that genre does not. Which is fascinating. And I think that Airplane nailed it so specifically that it's actually become a genre killer. In that you can't have those movies anymore. Because Airplane managed to be not just an incredibly anarchic, non-sequitur comedy, but also to hit all the dead-on notes of those Airplane dramas. Just you can't do it. To have, like, totally deadpan Leslie Nielsen 
delivering the lines he was delivering. Like you couldn't you couldn't watch any of those movies and not giggle at the delivery of those actors after that. I think, but it's weird how there was a time period where the parody, like, and I I was an avid Mad Magazine reader when I was a kid too. I had a subscription. It came in the mail to me. So I was reading parodies of movies before I saw the movies because they were in Mad. Like Batman Forever. Before I ever saw Batman Forever, I read the Mad parody or Mad Satire or whatever. I don't remember if they called it a parody or satire in Mad. They might have called it a satire. I think it, I think if it's a direct thing, I think that it's a parody. It's you're taking a thing and making a funny version of that thing. Yeah, I feel like in Mad they may have actually called them satires though. I can't remember. Anyway, I still have tons of issues of Mad Magazine at my mom's house. I could go look. I feel like kids don't do that now. They don't have that available to them now. Because they're like movie parodies, like actual movies that parody other movies, have either totally died out or are so bottom-of-the-barrel, lowbrow bad that people aren't actually seeing them. Maybe that started with, like, Scary Movie? Yeah, I think that was the that was the beginning of that trend, you know, and you had scary movie and then it went on to God, what was it? It was I'm trying to think what the next one was epic movie or whatever. I still I don't watch them. Yeah. But the idea that these very quickly produced, thrown together parodies of either genres or a particular movie and have to be so quick, otherwise their references die on the vine, or the little gem in their hand starts to blink and they have to go make another movie. I feel like those have kind of killed movie parody, which is a shame in some sense, but if that's all they were going to be, it's not really a shame. (laughs) The parodies that you get now aren't the same as what was around when Mel Brooks was making parodies. Mm -hmm. I saw Spaceballs before I saw Star Wars. There's so much more going on in Spaceballs than just, hey, it's a Star Wars parody. And I think that's the difference. Well, what I was going to get to, not only with The Tick, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and to a lesser degree... The Mel Brooks movies, which are very madcap and zany in their own right. I feel like the parodies and satires that stick are the ones where, even though they're sending up something, they have their own characters and their own voices such that by the end of the movie or by the end of the story or once you really get into the story, you find that you actually care about these characters and you're invested in the story, not just make me laugh. I think that's true of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You care about Eddie Valiant. You care about Roger Rabbit and Jessica Rabbit. You worry for them when Judge Doom is going to spray them with dip. Which it's been said before, still terrifying. Very terrifying. That poor little shoe. When he gets when he gets steamrolled. <laughs> yeah. And and comes up off the ground. <laughs> it's 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 young Matt the first time he saw that, a uh, flipped out. <laughs> But, like, you, you end up caring about those characters. You end up caring about the Tick and Arthur. Mm-hmm. You end up caring about, you know, even, like, Barf and Spaceballs to a degree. So when I do, like, stuff like Copernicus Jones or Everything Will Be Okay, it's weird. They always start as more satirical than they end up being because I end up creating characters that I'm like, I want to tell a story with these characters and I'm invested in them. So, like, Copernicus Jones is a character I care about enough. And, like, Copernicus Jones goes from being, like, what I thought was going to be a silly robot noir thing to what I hope is a story that is an actual, like, noir tragedy by the end of it. Like, has all those noir elements that ends the way a noir does. And that's the way I am with Everything Will Be Okay, too. Like, the setting is ridiculous. Like, the setting is absurd that all these things are happening all at the same time but to the characters and the way that i write the characters they're reacting to these things not with a wink at the camera not with a grin and a 
We know this is just a story. They're reacting as if this is happening. I, I the the parody that has ended up sticking with me, the the parody and satire that I can't get out of my head, is the stuff where it sort of sneaks in an actual emotional story on you. That's what I end up trying to recreate every time, uh, anytime I do anything like that. Yeah, and I think one a recent example, which I know you and Chris have talked about, that I can think of is the Adventure Zone, which yeah started off as just oh these funny guys are going to go in and do goofs on a D and D setting. And has become this entire other thing where all someone has to tell me now is, hey, tell me that refuge is safe and I will tear up because Roswell is a beautiful bird earth elemental thing and also kind of Baymax and that's okay. Sure. (laughs) So it's this idea where, yeah, you start off as just, oh, you know, I'm writing a goof on this thing. And yeah, if you write it well, you end up with characters that you care about. So yeah, I think that's a really, it's a good goal. The Adventure Zone really sneaks up on you. Yeah. Pedals to the Metal isn't even my favorite story arc in The Adventure Zone. But I think about how it ends with Hurley and the Raven and how weirdly impactful that was. Where I was just like, what is happening on this goof show? Mm-hmm. On this D&D goof show? Where like suddenly I care about these characters and this is a sad a sad thing. And e- even earlier than that in Pedals to the Metal, you know, when you realize you're in a Fury Road slash wacky races slash whatever else car speed racer basically the the casa christie race from speed racer but with magic and like part way through you've got this incredible action sequence where they're jumping back and forth between the cars and taco is flipping a car with a spell and i'm just listening to this going this is this is exciting this is great where are my jokes i don't care (laughs) yeah i mean there there are there are some jokes sprinkled throughout but yeah like and, and I don't want to speak for Griffin McElroy, even though Griffin and I have some weird similarities. He went to journalism school, too. Okay. And used to be a, ser- a serious news guy. I watched a video not too long ago where he was talking about, hey, I'm a serious news guy. <laughs> and then, like, two years later, he was putting amiibos in his mouth. <laughs> he and I are similar in those ways, but I don't want to speak for him. But I know for me, I think almost without being conscious of it, there's this sense of, like, I don't want to invest all my time and energy into just a gag that people are going to forget. I love gags and I love writing gags and I love making people laugh. But if I'm going to invest myself in a story and creating a story, I want it to make you laugh and also make you feel other emotions, tug at your heartstrings a little bit, get you invested in someone or something. Like I always sneak up on myself with it. Like the book I have coming out in June, the third King Oblivion book, which is called Supreme Villainy, is his memoir. It's his life story. When I planned on it and I started it, the idea was he'll be involved in things throughout history and it'll be funny. And as I'm writing it, and and I don't want to give away what actually happens in the book, but his his life basically has three distinct arcs. He has one adversary, then he has another adversary, and then the last arc of his life is something different. It's not about a conflict per se, or it's about a more internal conflict. And when I got into that more internal conflict, I shocked myself with what I had set up, what I had made happen, and how I had given this character who was created to be an evil supervillain you're not supposed to like and who says terrible things and talks about the terrible things he does and is a complete egotist and everything else. I gave him a, a vulnerability and an emotional core that I never thought he would have. It's almost like an innate thing where it's like, if I'm going to get inside a character's head, I want them to feel things. 
I don't want them to just be two-dimensional. And I think, like I've said before, I think the best parody and satire has those rounded characters in it, even if they're an analog of or parody of some character you know from another thing. Like, they take on lives of their own. To use Spaceballs as an example again, Dark Helmet has a life of his own. <laughs> I was about to say, I was waiting for the Lone Star reference, but it's like, nope, Dark Helmet caught me by surprise. I mean, Lone Star too, but I feel like Lone Star is kind of more two-dimensional, whereas Dark Helmet is so different from Darth Vader, <laughs> where if you watch Spaceballs enough times, and I have, you kind of get to the point where you're like, what is going on with Dark Helmet? What is Dark Helmet's deal? <laughs> I would read a a prequel novel about Dark Helmet. <laughs> I would too. And frankly, I would I would kickstart a comics adaptation. It's like, you know, like a, a, <laughs> a six-issue limited series, Dark Helmet <laughs> begins. Yeah. Yeah, let's get that. Marvel, get the Spaceballs license to go with your Star Wars <laughs> license and, and go off to the races. Get Jason Aaron to write. Oh, yeah. And make it happen. Or get Ryan North and go in a completely different direction. I'd read either one of those. I'd read either one of those. <laughs> and you mentioned very early on in this conversation developing a voice for King Oblivion PhD. And you mentioned on Ajax that you're actually doing some some video packages with with King Oblivion. So do you want to speak a little to that? Yeah. Because I know I know you were you're a stand up guy. So was there something in performing in character or? Here and there, I've done stand-up. I don't do it as much as I used to. And I've sort of discovered that it's not my thing. because Not because of the way I feel when I'm doing it, because I usually feel pretty good when I'm on stage, but the way I feel before and after. Okay. I have done stand-up before. I mean, I, I enjoy doing it while I'm doing it. King Oblivion, like, I never thought that I would I would portray King Oblivion. I got railroaded into portraying him one time when I was on the Man Cow show, which if you're not familiar with Man Cow, Man Cow is a shocking disc jockey <laughs> from Chicago who went mega conservative after 9-11, but still does, like, Howard Stern stuff on his show. Okay. And when I wrote the first King Oblivion book, or when it was going to get published by a publisher, because I self-published it first, the publicist who I was assigned told me that I was going to be appearing on the Man Cow Show to promote the book. And I said, okay. And even though I lived in Chicago at the time, I was a phone interview. So I got on the phone at the time that they told me to, which was very early in the morning, and waited for like 45 minutes for Man Cow to start talking to me with no signal, really. Like, no producer came on and was like, okay, this is your segment. Man, Man Cow just started talking to me. And he started talking to me. He said, now we have King Oblivion PhD who wrote this supervillain book. And I was expecting to just talk as me, <laughs> not as the character. So on the fly, I had to come up with a voice for King Oblivion PhD and try to answer his questions as the character, which I, I don't know how that went or not. And then after his last question, he hung up on me, <laughs> which I don't know if that's just how they end interviews or if... If he, like, got sick of me or what, but whatever the case. That's the only other time I've ever performed as King Oblivion, and... It was one hell of a yes and. Yeah, that's right. And so, this time, I was asked to do some some segments for a, a local TV station where I was going to portray King Oblivion PhD, and I don't know if it's several more years of writing as him or just having some prep time, but now I kind of got it. First of all, I've got the costume which helps <laughs> with a crown and a mask and a hooded cape. And so I've got that. And when we did the, the shoots and, and I don't know when they're going to actually be airing, I'll tweet them because they're going to be on the videos are going to be online. When I was doing it, I felt very comfortable. 
Like I felt like I fit in this guy's skin in a way that I absolutely didn't when I was doing it on Mancal. So part of it is it was scripted. So I could do what I do when I create his voice, which is write it. And then I just had to say it in like a performed supervillain voice. And that felt like it really came together. I mean, I guess we'll see how it's received (laughs) once it's out there. Yeah, and I also think that you know, having the the hood and the mask and the crown, it's kind of like, and this is a, a broad comparison, so that's a long bow to draw. I remember seeing the documentary on Hamilton and seeing that the guy who played King George had this incredibly heavy crown, and so he couldn't stand properly, move his head properly, or walk properly. And so all of his mannerisms came from, right, I have to balance this heavy-ass crown on my head. And as such, he gained this sort of slightly strangled delivery in some of his lines. And that just became part of the character, the physicality of that built into the character. So I imagine when you're being King Oblivion PhD, wearing the mask and the hood and the crown and everything, I think it would be, you know, kind of easy to be like, right, this is who I am right now. Yeah. Also, when I did it, like I did my quick changes in a room with a big mirror. So when I would leave the room, I would see myself in the mirror with the crown and the mask on. And I would kind of just say, okay, I'm that guy now. But King Oblivion is just me with all the empathy turned down and the ego turned way up. Anyway, and like a totally different life story, obviously. But <laughs> but like as far as personality, there's a lot of me in him. So it's not that hard to just fiddle with those knobs on myself and then be him and just kind of deepen my voice and not make ours as hard and just talk as that guy. It ended up being natural in a way that it definitely wasn't when I was asked to be him before. <laughs> so... So Matt, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? For the longest time on War Rocket Ajax, our spiel at the end of the show where we would tell people where they could find us would just go on and on. So we've been looking for ways to shorten that. And the way I have done that is by just having essentially what you would call an author page. And that is mattdwilson.net. It's M-A-T-T-D, as in danger, (laughs) Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N, dot net. Uh, And that has links to all my books, uh, like Amazon links to all three of the supervillain books. It has a link to Copernicus Jones Robot Detective on Comixology. It has links to my podcasts and, you know, other stuff that I've I've worked on. So and all and all my social media presences too: Twitter, Tumblr, whatever else I have. So Instagram. So, uh, yeah, you can just go there and there's a big there's a list of links and that's my stuff. And the Kickstarter is finishing when? The Kickstarter started on March 15th, and it will be ending on April 13th. So by the time this episode goes up, it'll probably be about halfway finished. And so you'll have a couple more weeks to to kick in. If anything you heard about it was enticing, I hope it was. I think it's going to be a fun book that might have a little more depth than people would expect from the absurdity of the premise. That's my hope for it. And you're going to be in Not Forgotten as well, right? That's right. Not Forgotten is an anthology. That Kickstarter is already finished and started. I know. I I got in. I got my pledge in time. (laughs) Good job. That's an anthology all about public domain superheroes. And the superhero that I ended up choosing was the Scarlet Avenger, the man who never smiles. (laughs) And I I did a a story about him. And uh, the teams for the Not Forgotten story and the team for Everything Will Be Okay, almost exactly the same. In both cases, I worked with an artist named Rodrigo Vargas, who's from Chile, who is wonderful. Just an an excellent collaborator 
and a great artist who does such good work. And I'm thrilled to be working with him on both of those things. Letterer on both of them is Josh Crock, who has done great work on Everything Will Be Okay. We're also working with a colorist, Joe Hunter, who is also a penciler in his own right, who has done some some great work and works on a, a comic with Chris Sims called Radical Guardian Skater X. He's also fantastic. So if you're not coming to Everything Will Be Okay and Not Forgotten for me, at least come for the artists because they're doing magnificent work on that stuff. Yeah. Also, he did work on the album art for this very show and was previously a guest. Yeah. Joe Hunter's a great guy. Yeah, Joe Hunter is is fantastic. All right, Matt. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. And I wish you the best of luck in your Kickstarter project and everything else you're doing. And I'm sure I'll be sending in another list to War Rocket Ajax, as is my want. I always appreciate your list, Lucas, just like I appreciate the box of Australian snacks you sent for movie fighters. (laughs) Kicking off a trend of people sending us international snacks. Yeah, this has been an absolute pleasure, Lucas. Thank you so much for for asking me to be on. It's it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much to Matt D. Wilson for his time. For Matt's signature drink, he recommended anything made with whiskey or rum or gin. But everyone knows private eyes drink whiskey, so I took it from there. And so I ended up with a souped-up Manhattan variant that's got a little bit of everything and breaks all the rules. So I present the Valiant. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of bourbon, half an ounce of rye, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, half an ounce of dry vermouth, and a quarter of an ounce of Grand Marnier, Cointreau, or Triple Sec. Add in two dashes of Angostura bitters. Shake vigorously for 30 seconds and strain through a fine sieve into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Garnish with a cherry or two. Here's to the pencil pushers. May they stave off lead poisoning and stay warm. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or really, as much as you want. If you want to go a million bucks, I will not stop you. You can get early access to episodes, physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. 
If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps with discoverability. You can also leave a review, and I'll read it out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, we have a Spotify playlist just for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find the playlist, and I update it each and every week with the music used in the show, including this song. It's Fire Dance by Dizzy Gillespie and Lalo Schifrin, and incidentally, it was the background music in Matt Fraction's head when he was writing the car chases in Hawkeye. Next week, I'll be talking to author, diversity advocate, and creator of the Yes All Women hashtag, Karuna Riazi, aka KM, about the films of Studio Ghibli. Before you go, stick around and listen, because Matt Wilson is about to take a barbecue layman like myself to fucking fool school about the intricacies of American barbecue. You don't want to miss this. As like a setup conversation, I have to ask you about this because you have become my preeminent expert on this, even secondhand. Okay. Matt, what's the deal with North Carolina barbecue? (laughs) How much time do you have? (laughs) All right. So most people you ask, well, first of all, let me start with regional barbecue in the U.S. <laughs> okay, because again, this is the this is why I wanted to ask you because I'm I'm in two countries like I'm from Canada, which doesn't really have a regional cuisine apart from you know French Canadian food, which is like poutine and and tartiere and and stuff like that. Right. And then I come to Australia, which has a lot of co-opted foods from the U.K. and so there's lots of meat pies and sausage rolls and stuff. But the U.S. barbecue thing is so regional and specific, it just fascinates me. So please, go ahead. Okay, so there are what I would call four regional styles of barbecue in the U.S. People will try to tell you that there are others, but there are really four. There's Texas barbecue, which is mostly beef, mostly brisket. So when I go to Texas and I tell people that that's not barbecue, they get mad at me. That happened the last when I was in Dallas a couple weeks ago, and, and I said it's not barbecue, but it's good. And like four people went, "What?" <laughs> I'm surprised guns weren't drawn. <laughs> yeah. Then there's Memphis barbecue, which is ribs, more or less. I'd imagine it would have a little crown or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Memphis dry rub is what that's referred to as. It's ribs. Sometimes there's sauce involved, but a lot of times it's just. A dry rub of spices, and then it's cooked in a smoker, and it's almost always ribs. And it's good, too. I've had all of these, and they're all good in their own way. (laughs) Then there's Kansas City barbecue, which is what the layman, someone who has no interest in barbecue at all, typically thinks of when they think of barbecue. The barbecue Uh, layman. (laughs) That's right. It's pork. It's The sauce is a sort of sweet, thick, tangy barbecue sauce what is usually just generally referred to as barbecue sauce so kansas city for whatever reason like it's your like when you go to a chain barbecue restaurant that's what you're getting more or less and then there's barbecue from the carolinas and there are four distinct styles of barbecue from the carolinas (laughs) all right there's south carolina barbecue which is an abomination unto our lord (laughs) it is it uses a mustard-based sauce Ooh. Uh, like a gold now okay I'll, I'll tell you about a subcategory that's Alabama barbecue okay Alabama barbecue uses a white sauce oh is that like that sort of sausage gravy kind of sauce where it's like uh I don't really I, it's like mayonnaise oh no 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 I like mayonnaise I do not want it on my barbecue yeah, it's a subset of what I would say is more like Kansas City barbecue. But so South Carolina barbecue uses a mustard-based sauce. A lot of times it is cut very finely 
into what you would what is described as a hash. It's gross, and I don't like it. Uh, you can get good barbecue in South Carolina, but I don't like the hash, and I don't like the mustard-based sauce. Then there are the two kinds of North Carolina barbecue that you will hear most about, which are most commonly referred to as Eastern style and Western style. Eastern style uses a thin vinegar-based sauce with spices in it. There's no tomato in it at all. It's just vinegar-based and a little spicy. Eastern style is very good, but not what I'm used to. Then there's Western style, which has a thicker, more tomato-y sauce. Still with some vinegar base to it, but thicker and more tomato-y. The style that I grew up with is one you don't hear about as much. It is sort of an in-between of Eastern and Western. It's what's known as Lexington-style barbecue because it originated in the city of Lexington. You can get it in my hometown of Shelby. You can get it in Lexington. You can get it in Greensboro. And there are certain restaurants where you get it. It is different from... Because what you're going to get in terms of like the cut of the pork in Eastern and Western style typically is just chopped meat. They just take it. They take a big pork shoulder and they chop it up. If you go to a Lexington style barbecue restaurant, you're going to get the option of either chopped or sliced. I always prefer it sliced because, as my dad used to say, there's less junk in it. (laughs) So you don't get as much of the quote-unquote burnt ends. Mm -hmm. It's more of the the meat in the middle. Now, a lot of people like burnt ends, and I I get that. But the barbecue I grew up with and I'm used to is, like, inside, it's sliced instead of chopped, and it has this kind of thin-ish vinegar sauce with a little bit of tomato taste to it. And that will always be, in my head, what barbecue is. Until I'm dead. (laughs) It's served with hush puppies, which, if you don't know what hush puppies are, they're little fried, sort of cylinder-shaped dough with a little onion flavor. They're very good. It's not open anymore, but I used to go to a barbecue place called the Hickory Log that had the best hush puppies in the history of mankind. It's also served with slaw that is red because it has barbecue sauce in it. Okay. I never eat. I'm not a slaw person. And then one of my main criteria for a barbecue restaurant is when you walk in and you sit down at the table, is there a pitcher of sweet tea <laughs> on the table? If there is, that place is good. <laughs> I recently came back from the States and I went to a wedding in St. Louis and I was about to ask where does St. Louis barbecue fit in and then I looked up the restaurant and I realized it says it right on their website. It's Memphis style. So there you go. <laughs> I, I would think it, in St. Louis you could get either Memphis or, or Kansas City style. But it is a little closer to Memphis, so oh, yeah. maybe that's part of the St. Louis-Kansas City rivalry. Yeah, the, the one big takeaway from the restaurant, apart from the portions were gigantic and I did not finish it, was that on the way out, they had their four smokers at the back, and one of them was named Smokey LaForge and had Jordy LaForge's visor painted on the side. I thought that was a okay, nice Okay, that's touch. great. <laughs> yeah, that's great. If you go to other cities, mm-hmm. other areas of the country, and try barbecue, they don't know what they're doing. Like, they're just trying whatever. <laughs> like, they're, they they usually will try to do a style. A lot of times they end up just doing Kansas City barbecue, but I remember specifically going to a place in Chicago when I lived there that said they had North Carolina-style barbecue. It was like a southern food restaurant, but they said they had North Carolina-style barbecue. And I tried it, and I got mad. <laughs> Like, I turned to my wife and I was like, we have to leave. (laughs) This isn't Eastern Lexington, North Carolina barbecue. One of my best friends, Ben Gullies, his brother, Will, almost got into a fist fight with a chef at a restaurant (laughs) over the claim that something was North Carolina-style barbecue. So, It's the how dare you, sir. 
Yeah, yeah. That that is that is what people are like around here when it comes to barbecue. Well, I'm gonna make you mad though because here in Australia, in the last couple of years, there's been kind of and God, this is a sentence I'm about to say, kind of a renaissance in Southern American food becoming popular. And so, okay. you know, every bar having pulled pork or brisket or ribs and stuff, it kind of as a, that's a thing. Yeah, it's become a trend. That's a thing. Yeah. And there is a place called the Oxford Tavern, which I like. It's a bar. It's a bar that I like. It used to be a topless bar. And then they renovated it and turned it into like a barbecue restaurant and kind of a pub type place, which means that the, the layout is a complete joke because it's like you've got these huge wide aisles between these like isolated tables. And you think, why is there so much space? Oh, because that's where topless people used to walk. And, the, <laughs> and they've turned it like on the weekends, they'll like bring out the smoker and have like, you know, they'll have it running all day and doing food. But where I think you'll get mad. Remember I said that when I was in St. Louis, I got thrown off by the portion sizes. Yeah. At the Oxford Tavern, you pay by the 100 gram when it comes to the meat. So just keep in mind, these prices are per 3.5 ounces, okay? Okay. So you've got beef ribs for $9 per 100 grams. You've got pork ribs for $8 per 100 grams. You've got brisket for $9 per 100 grams. Pulled pork, $7 per 100 grams. Lamb ribs, $8 per 100 grams. A quarter chicken, $8 each. And a big sausage for $7 each. I mean, look, that does make me mad. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but that—that's a thing that's happening in the United States too, where like people are opening kind of fancy barbecue restaurants. Mm-hmm. They had them in Chicago, but there was one where you had to have a reservation that I, that I was just like, we can't eat here. <laughs> but that—that's actually the Texas barbecue model. Okay, where you pay by the you know, and, and if you go to Texas, you're paying by the the quarter of a pound, <laughs> so, or half pound, or whatever. Texas barbecue places, you actually walk up to a counter, and there's a guy with a big knife standing in front of all this meat, and you say, I want a quarter pound of that, and they'll just cut it off for you, wrap it up in paper, and give it to you. One thing I want to note, though, I can't necessarily feel like American ownership of barbecue, per se. I don't mind if, it, if other countries try to do it or try it, because when we were in Edinburgh, our honeymoon a couple years ago, we were told to go, as a recommendation, to this place called Oink. Okay. That does roasted pig. Like, they, they roast a pig every day. They put it in the window, and they just pull meat off of it all day and put it on sandwiches. Then you can put, like, different kinds of sauces, marmalade, or haggis. Marmalade? Yeah, marmalade. Why? It's Scotland. <laughs> we went there, and we got a sandwich, and they were huge, so we were able to share one. We actually got haggis on it, which was kind of not bad. <laughs> And we ate it, and I was just like, this is where barbecue comes from. Nice. This is it. Scots-Irish settlers came to the United States, settled in the Appalachian Mountains, and did this, but smoked it instead of roasted it. And that's where barbecue came from. Like, everything, like, like I had some kind of, like, moment where these things just clicked into place for me. This haggis-soaked epiphany. Yeah. It, it, th- <laughs> thank you for putting that into into poetry for me. You're welcome. Although I gotta ask, does Marlene feel as strongly about barbecue as you do? Not even a little bit. <laughs> Somehow I had that feeling. <laughs> Let me tell you what she does feel strongly about. What's that? She's from Philadelphia. She feels strongly that they shouldn't be called subs, they should be called hoagies. And calling a cheesesteak, first of all, calling it a Philly cheesesteak makes her very angry. Like sometimes I will, to goad her, I'll be like, like sometimes we'll make cheesesteaks at home. We'll buy like steakums and make cheesesteaks at home. And, and I'll say, you know what, Marlene? These Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwiches are just as good as the ones they have in Philadelphia. <laughs> and, and she, like, 
She's like, please shut up. Please stop talking. Every single time. Does she do the cheese whiz? She doesn't like the whiz as much as just like regular American cheese. I, I mean, she's done it before. Her dad really likes whiz on his cheesesteaks. I've eaten a good many cheesesteaks in Philly with her. I kind of know the deal on them. I'm always a little bit thrown off when people talk about cheese whiz because cheese whiz in the States comes from like a, like a spray can, right? Sometimes. What they use in Philly is not out of a spray can. It's out of like a can, like a can that you open with a can opener and then they take like a ladle and they dip the cheese whiz out and put it on the cheese sticks. Wow. See, in Canada, cheese whiz, it comes in a jar. Okay. Like, kind of like you'd find, like, tomato paste or something. Okay. Many of my childhood snacking was, you know, crackers with cheese whiz, and it was a spread. So that when I see it come out of a can, I'm always, like, a little bit mystified. You mentioned you, you lived in Chicago, and I didn't realize I kind of knew that. So what's your Chicago hot dog stance? <laughs> oh, there's a sigh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Well, Marlene really likes Chicago hot dogs. I'm not a person who likes a lot of stuff on my stuff. Like, I'm not a person who eats, like, a a lot of stuff on a burger or a lot of stuff on a hot dog. And honestly, for most of my life, what I have eaten on a hot dog is just ketchup. If I'm at Wrigley Field, which I have been, and I get a hot dog from the hot dog guy, and he hands me the hot dog, and he'll be like, you want anything to go with that? You want some mustard? You want some ketchup? And I'll be like, can I get a couple packs of ketchup? And then he'll just give me the the meanest look. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> while he hands over two packs of ketchup. Like, you can get it, but they don't like it. Yep. <laughs> See, um, before I went to Chicago for the first time ever last year, my friend Eliza had sent me a postcard, which which it has, like, the proper way to order a Chicago hot dog. So I managed to not embarrass myself when I went into Owl's Beef and ordered a hot dog. And so, yeah, it had big letters, do not ask for ketchup, you will get the stink eye. Yeah, I mean, you will. You will. A lot of times I would just, like, like if we were going to do hot dogs, we'd get them to go, and then I'd put ketchup on them at home. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to endure that, that scorn, that deep, deep scorn. 